I would have to say I am optimistic that despite all this sort of evil stuff that's kind of being posted on Twitter or other social media sites or floating around in the universe there, I just think we're going to reach a point where it has a tipping point and we'll come back to another kind of civility. It's not going to be the civility of the 1950s or even the 1990s, but we're going to have to mature our thinking about how we use these social media tools, how we use the internet, how we use our phones, how we use all these devices that have yet to be designed and figure out how to effectively use them in our lives for better things than bad things. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Karen Jagoda, someone who's built a career in the intersection of politics and technology. She founded and ran a digital politics conference called the eVoter Institute back in 99 and has hosted her digital politics podcast since 2007. I asked Karen about her nonpartisan career in digital politics and how things have changed over time. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Karen Jagoda of the Digital Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So Karen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I live in La Jolla, California. I started the eVoter Institute back in 1999 when I lived in Washington, D.C. And I've had an interesting career trying to figure out the convergence of technology and politics over the last 20-some years now. I'm a technology person, so I like to figure out how technology can help level the playing field in all kinds of ways. I noticed that you started out getting an undergraduate degree in math, which my mom did, and what attracted you to that as a first degree? I was really good in math, and I was early on interested in robotics and artificial intelligence and math, and my parents encouraged it, and I was in all the advanced mathematics classes in high school and the only girl or one of two girls in the calculus class, so I was good at it. And, and that's kind of how I see the world. In college, I was a math major and a political science major because the political science department didn't really have much of a mathematical orientation. So I sort of did a, a dual major and pursued both as time went on. I know that you went and got a master's in business, an MBA, I assume. What did you do between college and going off to get that? And why did you take that second degree? 
I did that work as a night student, a summer student. I got that degree from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And at the time, I was also working at the Social Security headquarters after I graduated from college, doing fraud and quality assurance. They sort of subsidized that degree and gave me time off. And it was convenient to use that great university to pursue my degree. You had a series of jobs early on in your career in, the, in computers pre-internet. Tell me about what you were learning in those years. I joined the, the microcomputer business in 1982. It was Christmas time. I saw an ad in the newspaper to be a salesperson at the computer land around the corner from the White House. I immediately got the job when I walked in. I was selling early Apple computers, IBM personal computers, DEC, Osborne's, the whole range of computers that either evaporated or continued to sort of evolve like the apples. And most of my clients were publishers. They were government agencies. There were a lot of interesting uh, Washington clients that wanted to be early adopters back in the 80s. So I had the pleasure of dragging huge computers and big monitors to (laughs) a lot of different offices. I was pretty successful at that because I really, because I love the technology, I, I was sort of always encouraging people to experiment. <laughs> I spent one summer in the same era at Computerland of North Denver, putting together the computers when someone bought them and uh, sort of roaming around the storefront, looking at, at them and being interested in what was going on. But that was just a summer job for me. How did your career proceed from Computerland forward? Well, after Computerland, I went to Businessland <laughs> and... I spent another five years really continuing to sell all kinds of computers and networks. And my big client at that point was the Gannett Corporation USA Today. And I was selling millions of dollars of computers to them and the Washington Post and and other people, other organizations, big publishers. I got to talk to a lot of interesting people. I saw a lot of interesting applications and saw a lot of the limitations of what the technology could and couldn't do. And this was when we still had dial-up modems, very clunky equipment that took up a lot of space and, and really required a little bit of training more than certainly it does today. Yeah, I remember 300 baud, 1200 baud, 2400 baud, 9600 as they those modems got a little faster <laughs> over really time. Fast. But it, <laughs> I know, it it's, now seems ridiculous, but, but that sound of the modem connecting will always be present with me, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was there sort of when the internet was in its nascent stage. I left business land in early, it was like 91 or 1990. And I started working on a project with AOL, otherwise known as America Online back then. I saw behind the screen a lot of the interesting technology that was being developed. Again, dial-up, but email, but we've got mail phenomena. The project that I was working on was a points of light project for the George Bush competition. We didn't win, but I met a lot of really interesting people, partners for the Library of Congress and very interesting other big organizations. And so... I sort of saw where the internet was going and I kind of jumped in at that point to see what kind of interesting projects I could work on. 
And where did you go to do that? I worked with some small consulting firms in Washington who were doing web development stuff and sort of internet things. You know, it was still so early. People didn't really have that many computers and the internet was really just starting. So I mean, the internet had been there obviously for a while, but it was just becoming popularized at that point. What was your role? I did different projects with different clients. I was really an advocate. So I would go and talk to people about what their business mission was, what their product description was that they wanted to promote online. And it, I like working with pioneers. I worked with pioneers in the computer business and I liked working with pioneers in the internet space. And, you know, it was the days when people would say, why should I have a website? What's a web address going to do for me? And just sort of basic stupid questions. But if you're a big organization like uh, Pharma, you might not have thought there was a real need for a website. I know it seems really weird now, but back then, there, there was sort of an evangelical kind of approach to getting people on board, as you probably would remember as well. I mean, you said that you, like, also majored in politics, if, if I remember. Was the political streak something that you maintained an interest in all through, or how did you end up trying to mix <laughs> politics and, and Internet? Well, after all those years selling computers and finding interesting applications for them across all kinds of industries, I realized how little the Internet was being used for politics and advocacy living in Washington, D.C. I did maintain my interest in politics, but during that time, I got married and my husband had been an assistant to Jimmy Carter. And so I had a chance to talk to a lot of people who were deep into politics and who were political consultants and who were reporters. And I was just flabbergasted at how little the internet had influenced the political environment, how, how resistant the political crowd was to using that kind of technology. So after my business land days were over, I decided that I would pursue that question, but it took another nine years, I guess, what was and is the eVoter Institute? I had worked with the New York Times digital folks. We came up with this idea to test the effectiveness of online ads for the Peter Vallone for Governor campaign in 1998. And I coordinated with Nick Nyan, who was starting a company called Dynamic Logic. He was all about measuring effectiveness and I attracted the attention of Joe Sandler on the Democratic side and Trevor Potter on the Republican side, and also another speechwriter, political consultant type. And we kind of all came together in New York and wrote this eVoter 98 study and promoted it, and everybody sort of took it off in their own way to find business related to that topic. Shortly after the study was released, it was February of 1999, I had the chance to meet Mike Bloomberg at a party. He was just thinking about running, and he whipped out his card and asked me to send him a copy of the study. So I engaged in a little bit of conversation with his team over the next year or so. And by the fall of 1999, it became obvious that there was a need to do a conference. So we did a, a conference at the Four Seasons in Washington, and we had about 
300 people. There was a community out there. There were a lot of confused people, but there were a lot of people who were equally, if not more, evangelical about the technology than I was. So that was the germ of the idea. I remember going to, in that time, like the Politics Online conference at GW and a similar kind of thing to that? or or Actually, we started before they did. And there were a couple of other groups in Washington that put on events, campaigns and elections. The AAPC sort of saw me as a threat because I was talking about digital and they were talking about TV and sort of traditional stuff. So they put on their events and occasionally I would do a panel for them or there'd be some collaborative efforts. So I was a bit of an upstart, but there was a lot of commingling back then. Michael Kornfeld from GW was a big supporter of eVoter and spoke at many of our conferences. And we had big conferences. We had little conferences. We had conferences related to specific topics. We had all-day conferences where half the time people spent out in the hallway talking to each other rather than listening to the speakers. But they were productive conferences. What was the purpose of this for you? Was that a business that you aim to make money at? Yeah. And how did that do in that regard? We had sponsorship support. We had some pretty good uh, response to the work that we were doing. I I hooked up with a couple of other research firms. HCD Research was a, a great partner. And we found some other consulting gigs. People wanted specific polling taken. They they wanted to sort of figure out how to use the internet. I, I did a whole variety of different kind of consulting projects to help people figure out how to apply their technology to the political and advocacy space. So I tried to act as an intermediary, sort of helping them figure out which vocabulary to use and really what the hot buttons were so that they could sell their technology to these people who were spending money, but not very much on digital at the time. So it was really a question of finding the money and, and justifying it, not not meeting a demand or a need that was already recognized. What was Turtleback Interactive back then? I started at around the same time as eVoter Institute, and I used that as the consulting arm to do other projects that weren't related to politics. As time has gone on, I've developed another podcast besides the Digital Politics podcast that has to do with healthcare. And I use the Turtleback Interactive identity for that podcast. So people don't think it's a political podcast when we're talking about healthcare and digital sort of medicine, precision medicine, that sort of thing. So what was the trajectory of the eVoter Institute over time? Did it get bigger, smaller? How did you change it as the internet became more mature and and politics became more of a big deal? So between 1999 and 2004, we did a lot of conferences. We did conferences in Washington, New York, Los Angeles. And then I moved out here to La Jolla, California in 2004. My husband got a job at University of California, San Diego. And I continued to have some conferences in 2004, 2005, 2006, and that was just when social media was kicking in, so there was a next wave that was coming, and in 2007, I I was asked by the local newspaper to do a digital politics radio show, a live radio show that was sent out on the internet. I went to a studio, there was a producer, 
basically that seemed like a good way to continue my conference kind of work by talking to people and putting that information out to a broad audience and those who could just come to an event. And I had done a little bit of online streaming of some of the events there towards the end, but that was really kludgy. So I figured there must be a better way to sort of share the information of these experts with a broader audience. And so I started this radio show, which turned out to actually be a podcast. And now it's 15 years later. <laughs> you said it was live originally. Mm-hmm. At what point did it turn into a podcast or what, what's the distinction there? Well, it was recorded. And I had a hard stop and they laid in news. I went for an hour and I had different guests. Some of them were in the studio, some of them they, you know, they dialed into. But it was just on the San Diego Union Tribune's website as content. And it was recorded and then it was posted on iTunes and on their website early, early. And it and people weren't really talking about podcasts back then. So it was kind of an experiment and the publisher of the Union Tribune had come to my eVoter Institute events that I put on here in San Diego once I moved here, and he thought I'd be good at that, which never occurred to me, but it was fun. And, and I learned a lot from the producer who was doing it, who had been an old radio guy. And then I met other old radio people along the way who taught me a little bit about how this works. What did you like about it? What I found is a lot of people who have started doing a podcast or a radio show, they come to really like it for some reason. And you've obviously continued it for a really long period of time. What, what is it about that process that you enjoy? Living out here in La Jolla is nice, but it's very isolated. So I really enjoy having the chance to connect with people like you or all the other people I have on both of my podcasts. I talked to an international audience of guests from my Empowered Patient podcast, and I like talking to interesting people. And there are a lot of interesting people here, but COVID made it even harder to mingle with people in real life. So it's become even more of a good way to maintain relationships and also to learn new things and to stay current. What has it led to for you? You've built an audience, I assume. Does it lead to business for you? Does it lead to relationships? Well, we, we did two books in 2005 and 2009 that were a bunch of essays from all these different kinds of experts that I've met and talked to. And uh, that book is sort of circulated. It never made much money, but uh, that was one way to sort of put the history out there. I think at this point in time, the whole idea of the internet being used for politics and advocacy has taken on a whole different flavor. I'm feeling like there's a lot more money in this space now than there ever was before, but there's a lot more money being spent in general on political and advocacy advertising. So I'm not quite sure where the leverage point is for me, but I am curious. So I'd say I'm looking for a way to be influential and productive. And I want to generate revenue. I've been looking for sponsors for my podcast all through the 15 years, and I've been successful at bringing along Pandora, which is now owned by SiriusXM. They've been a really loyal sponsor for many years. AOL was a sponsor for many years. Right now I've got a couple of sponsors that are in the P2P texting space. There's ways to generate revenue here. 
I think podcasting early on was not a particularly good way to generate revenue, but it's becoming more monetizable. The audience that I reach is very specific, so it's not a mass audience. And I'm not talking about partisan red meat stuff. I'm not looking for that kind of audience. I'm looking to promote smart uses of technology for politics and advocacy on both sides, on all sides. What makes a good guest for you? Who do you get excited about when you have them on? I would say a good guest is someone who's not giving me just like the pat answers. Sometimes people just come up with their little sales pitch and, and you ask them any question, they always go back to what they want to say. So I prefer people who have had some experience in this space and who are able to have a conversation like you and I are having a conversation rather than just business bullet points. And and also, I think it's important to talk to people who have made mistakes or have seen failure of one sort or another. I, I find entrepreneurs really fun to talk to, but the baby entrepreneurs who not sort of bumped up against reality yet sometimes are a little too breathy and they're just a little too hard to sort of get your arms around what they're really bringing to the marketplace. But the ones who are a little more seasoned are often very fun to talk to because they see the challenges and the obstacles and also the opportunities that really haven't been met. So have the type of guests that you have changed much over time? Not really. No, there's a pretty big crowd of political consultants out there, as you will know, and it's growing. And some of my friends, as I mentioned earlier, have dropped out of the space, but there's a whole lot of new ones as well. So there's a pretty big crowd out there, I think. When you think about the changes in digital politics over the time you've been tracking it so closely, what stands out for you? Well, the amount of money that's going to it, it's certainly shown that it's it's useful and it's it's worth a line item in the budget. I think really what st- stands out is how reluctant campaigns still are to really use it effectively. They seem to want to buy Google AdWords and Facebook ads and basic stuff. They're not particularly interested in experimenting or finding niche sites or I'll even say advertising on podcasts, which seems to be another sort of next wave where niche audiences can be found and advertising can be placed. So I'm also concerned about the sort of misuse of the advertising and disinformation and misinformation. So I think the whole idea of moderation and rules that have to be followed is is kind of an important element here, wouldn't you say? I think we have a lot of really big challenges right now online in politics, for sure. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, you know, coming from a nonpartisan perspective, in my view, um, that there's a there's a real problem with the Republican Party right now in the disinformation arena and not every Republican, but unfortunately, a majority right now are following Trump into a lot of lies and misrepresentations about what's going on in the world. Does it make it hard to stay in a nonpartisan <laughs> yes. lens when that is going on? Yeah, it does. It yeah. does. But um, when we're talking about technology, oftentimes people can put aside the partisan element. Um, but I mean, if you're talking to a Republican consultant, do you get tempted to say, 
why are you still doing this? Well, when- that's part of the you- reason I don't use video when I do my podcast, because I don't necessarily want the guests to see me laughing or smirking or trying to not react. So um, I, I try to steer my questions away from the partisan things. I'm very cognizant. A few weeks ago, I talked with a service provider that works with Republican organizations, RNC and, and all the other organizations. And that was just like a fact. It wasn't anything that got me all riled up or made me want to ask other questions. It was just that's who their client base was. And that's okay with me, as long as what they're doing is bringing a good product to the market and providing good value and not violating the rules of the FCC or the FEC or anybody else who's involved with this kind of situation. What's the last episode you did that you really felt excited while you were doing the interview? Like sometimes I'll have a guest where it's just an intense conversation for some reason because of their story, because of something about their character or what they're working on. And, and it's, it's just exciting to be in, in that kind of interview. Who comes to mind in that for you? I would say some political consultants who've been at this for a while, who are trying to wrestle with the changes in the format. They've known me for a long time and, and I was part of the reason they even got interested in digital advertising. And now they got to think about TikTok. They got to think about five-second commercials instead of 30-second or minute commercials and all these different outlets where media can be placed. It's kind of fun to talk to them and have them realize that we were right all those years ago, and there's a lot more to be done with this. And I honestly think what the Republicans are doing now demonstrates how much can be done with the technology, whether it's good or bad. It's just it's what it is. So I like to draw some lessons from the good and the bad, and particularly the things that don't work, because you don't want to repeat those. But maybe there's some ways to tweak those things to make them work better for your candidate or the audience that you're trying to reach. So, you know, for example, TikTok doesn't work for everybody, but it might be critical for some people. So in that way, I think that the political consultants who are dragging along the legacy solutions are kind of fun to tweak a little bit and to sort of probe to see what they're really thinking about now as opposed to what they might have been thinking about when some of this stuff came on the scene. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I I can imagine that for sure. One of the things I noticed is your episodes are pretty short for a podcast, which in a certain sense, I, you know, I looked at and I'm like, maybe she knows what she's doing better than me. They're succinct and you get to the point. I'm very interested in people. And so I tend to want a lot of time, like I've taken with you to, to hear the backstory, to hear the biography, to sort of see the development of somebody to the expert that they now are. There's a discipline, I think, to choosing a few questions and making the episodes briefer. How do you think about that? Does that come back to the early days in radio or where's that coming from? A little bit. I've experimented with this. I've tried longer interviews that we would then edit. I didn't find that very satisfying because I found them very, it seemed choppy. So at some point it was better to 
just do that complete conversation. I do ask guests to send me suggested questions so I kind of know what's on their mind. So I don't bring up one thing and they really want to talk about something else. If I interview an author, and I've interviewed a number of authors recently, I usually get a PDF of the book or some kind of press package. So I have some background and I like to come up with maybe eight questions. Generally, the podcasts are between 15 and 20 minutes. And as I'm talking to people, I always think of new questions because it's like we're having this conversation here. So I'm always sort of cognizant of the next questions that I want to ask, but sometimes I go off on tangents, but I try to bring it back. I should say on my Empowered Patient podcast, I often talk about subjects I really don't know very much about, like oncology or kidney disease or cell structure or inflammation. I get into some really murky topics, but I'm sort of aided by, again, the suggested questions. And in those cases, I really have to stay on on course because I don't want to veer too far off into territory where I really know nothing about it. On the political side, if I veer off a little bit, I've got enough history so that I can relate things or I can steer a conversation back. If somebody starts going off on a tangent, I can kind of swing it back through. But I've been told that shorter podcasts are popular because people can listen to them while they're exercising, while they're working out, while they're doing chores around the house, when they're driving in their car to the supermarket. It's kind of a bite-sized content thing that they can consume that doesn't require all that much time. I think sometimes people want to talk more, so sometimes they do like a follow-up a couple of weeks later, I'll have them back on to talk. I'll probably have a number of people who I talked to earlier this year on after the election just to get updates, just to get more information about clients they couldn't talk about before the election, but now they can talk about them. So in some cases, I have a continuous kind of conversation, particularly with folks like Sean Duggan from Pandora. We've been talking for years about this subject. You mentioned that you, and I think widely this was shared, had this optimism about the internet and politics early on. It seemed like it would open, it would democratize things maybe. People were excited about bringing it into politics. You also sort of indicated that maybe of late it's become clear that it might be a double-edged sword. What do you worry about now in in that intersection? I worry about the younger generation who aren't being given good civics education, aren't being given good literacy education about how to differentiate between good information and bad information and how to research and how to question things that they are presented by quote-unquote experts or just random people. I think there's always been misinformation. There's always been ways to gossip and influence elections at the last minute with dirty tricks of one sort or another. So I don't think personally that the social media has caused any of those things. I think it's made that harder to stop sooner because it spreads so quickly. And I think it also gives a louder megaphone to people who don't have very much 
money or authority or expertise. They just have a loud voice and a loud megaphone. So they're getting attention that they might not have otherwise gotten other than standing in the town square and yelling and having people stop by and see what their problem is. So I think the technology is only going to get more user-friendly, as it were, and we're all sort of in a position to figure out how to use that power of the technology for good. And the people who are using it for bad, we need to figure out how to mitigate the problems that they can create. Do you have any suggested remedies? I think more education of understanding information sources. And I think understanding the role of journalists. We need more citizen journalists. Everybody's got this phone and the camera in their pocket. So let's all be smarter about the kinds of news that we are aggregating, sharing, collecting, because there's a lot of good that can come from sharing information about misuses of all sorts, whether it's potholes that aren't being addressed or police acting inappropriately or some sort of international event where you've got local demonstrations on the street and we need to have more accurate information about who's really participating in those protests rather than just accepting some Twitter feed about who's there and who's not there. It just there seems to be just a need for more information, even though we have a lot of information. I still come down on the side of more information is good and the more open we are about the source of the information, the more we're able to differentiate the good information from the bad information. I know there's a lot of organizations that are working on this as well. It's something that I think is doable at a grassroots level, at a local level. You know, I think high schoolers need to be made more aware of the impact of them sharing misinformation on Twitter or liking a TikTok video that's just complete bullshit, if you'll excuse the language. We need to educate a smarter class of citizens, I think. And that goes for older folks, too. It's not just the youngsters, but older folks might still be reading newspapers or they might still trust some of the traditional media sources where the younger generation doesn't even have that sort of exposure. When you look forward, where do you want to take your work? I'm increasingly interested in the medical and healthcare space, and I think there's a lot of public policies that's related to that as well, and figuring out a way to work maybe more on the advocacy side. There's a lot of research out there about social determinants of health, and I think legislatively we can address a lot of those issues. It shouldn't just be up to real estate developers to put a grocery store in a neighborhood. There should be other ways to provide resources to all kinds of populations that are currently underserved. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for technology. What about in the political work? Or, or is that are you imagining that that tapers off? No, I, I don't want it to taper off. I've been sort of tempted to let it taper off. But I think after this election here in the midterm, we're, we're talking right before the election, I think there's going to be a lot of scrambling around and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work, and really what kind of tools are going to be effective in 2024. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I think there's a lot of lessons that have been learned. I'm convinced that this peer-to-peer texting element is very strong, and we don't have much good research or evidence yet about how persuasive that is and how much money is being raised that way. And 
I think campaigns are looking to spend their resources in smarter ways. So I think digital solutions will become even more appealing because mailers are just more expensive. The cost of postage is going up. The cost of paper is going up. And TV commercials are not what they used to be. So streaming services and all the other opportunities for political advertising, advocacy advertising, I think we're entering the next phase. And I think I can be useful in helping educate about some of those options and which ones are most effective. You are in the business of asking people questions. What questions should I ask you that I haven't? (laughs) I don't really know that I have one. I guess... If I'm optimistic or not, and I, I would have to say I am optimistic, despite all this sort of evil stuff that's kind of being posted on Twitter or other social media sites or floating around in the universe there, I just think we're going to reach a point where it has a tipping point and we'll come back to another kind of civility. It's not going to be the civility of the 1950s or even the 1990s, but we're going to have to mature our thinking about how we use these social media tools, how we use the internet, how we use our phones, how we use all these devices that have yet to be designed and figure out how to effectively use them in our lives for better things than bad things. And and if we can influence just a single person in our lives to be more thoughtful about the use of technology, I think we can all say we've done something. And I'm not so sure how much I can help, but I do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to share these views. And I have talked to some students. I've talked to some people who are trying to talk to some students. I'd like to encourage more dialogue, frankly, about this subject, rather than just throw up our hands and saying, golly gosh, the Facebook is terrible, Twitter's terrible, what are we going to do? Let's go back to counting votes by hand, because you know we can just trust the old way of doing things. I think it's good just to have one more voice like mine to help push us all forward a little bit. What is the source of that optimism? I'm a glass half full kind of person. Yeah, it's a character flaw. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe the opposite of a flaw, uh, a virtue. I like to solve problems and I like to identify possible solutions. So when I see campaigns sending all these emails, send me $3, send me $100, send me whatever. I got three or four while we were talking. Yeah, well, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm on Republican lists and Democrat lists, and um, I get all kinds of appeals from all around the country. And it just strikes me that that's such hard work for so little return that I think there's ways that we can all use this technology in smarter ways. And I'll just say that I've already voted. So I just wish I could like opt out of seeing all these TV commercials, right? I mean, there's just so much that's just floating around in front of us. It just seems that there's a lot more that could be sort of cleaned up and otherwise sort of smoothed out and how we communicate, how voters communicate with candidates and how candidates communicate with voters. Well, I've seen your name for a long time and I'm glad to have the opportunity to put a face and a voice and some dialogue to to that. So appreciate you taking the time. Uh, well, anything else you want to say? Well, you'll have to come on to my podcast. We'll have to get on your schedule after the election and give us a little sense of your historical view of this, because you yourself have been quite a pioneer in this space, wouldn't you say? 
I I played some role on the software side for sure. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm always reluctant to be the guest, so I'll have to decide whether that makes sense. Well, Karen, thanks so much. That was Karen Jagoda. She's at digitalpoliticsradio.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.